Thank you all for attending today for part two of our talk from Karen and Jeannie Rana. Um, we have a few more people coming in. We'll wait for them to settle a bit before we... I I'm going to introduce Lonnie Mosley, who's the chair of our adult um, RE committee, and she's going to introduce the speakers. I did want to let you know that in the back, my husband has a basket of persimmons. I'm calling him the Pied Piper of persimmons. We've had over 100 this year, so if you're interested, please take some. And now here's Lonnie. Good morning, good morning. So last week I had the pleasure of introducing my dear friends, uh, Kieran and Jeannie Rana. And I basically indulged myself by just talking about me and how awed I was by their wonderfulness. So this week I'm going to keep it short and have them, because they need the time to show us some Sufi practices and deepen our understanding of the Sufi way. So here's the formal introduction. Kieran and Jeannie Rana are co-founders of Bay Dervish, a center of the Sufi way in Alameda. Kieran is a senior teacher in the Sufi way, a mystical community that has its origins in the teachings of universal Sufism introduced in the West in 1910 by the Indian mystic Inyat Khan. Jeannie Rana, his wife, is a poet, beautiful poet, and fellow Sufi. He's also a member of the First Unitarian Church of, Burke, of Oakland. This seminar will be on, I follow the religion of love, whatever way love's camels take, that is my religion and my faith. These are the words of Sufi mystic and poet Ibn Harabi, Kieran and Jeannie Rana. Oh, good morning, everybody. Um, this morning, I'm going to begin with what is actually essential, the essential Rumi. And I'll read two of his poems and one of my poems. Um, <clears throat> somebody mentioned that this was their favorite. Somebody last week here mentioned that this was their favorite Rumi poem. Can you hear me all right? Am I good? Okay. The Guest House. Bless you. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice... Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So that's Rumi. And this is me. Um, the Sufi way <coughs> has uh, currently, with our, our new leader in, for the last 10 years, a, a focus on non-dualism. And um, so <clears throat> there is a non-dual strain in Sufism, and we are, 
we are now trying to be non-dual. So this is, uh, this is one way. This is, poem is called The Way. Take the path called least resistance. Dare to stay where you are. Dare to stay where you are. Breathe into now. Let the senses play, the mind sleep. Let the senses play, the mind sleep. Be the yellow leaf on the pond. No, be the pond. Be the breath blowing the yellow leaf. So that's me. And Rumi again. We're going to be talking about love today. Karen said that that would be the the subject tonight is love. And and so um, I found a specific poem by Rumi about love. This is called Dying, Laughing. A lover was telling his beloved how much he loved her, how faithful he had been, how self-sacrificing, getting up at dawn every morning, fasting, giving up wealth and strength and fame, all for her. There was a fire in him. He didn't know where it came from, but it made him weep and melt like a candle. You've done well, she said, but listen to me. This is all the decor of love. All this is the branches, the leaves, and the blossoms. You must live at the root to be a true lover. Where is that? Tell me. You've done the outward acts, but you haven't died. You must die. When he heard that, he lay back on the ground laughing and died. (laughs) He opened like a rose that drops to the ground and died laughing. That laughter was his freedom and his gift to the eternal. As moonlight shines back at the sun, he heard the call to come home and he went. So, the Gospel of Rumi. <laughs> uh, we have we have some um, information over here. Last week I had a few of my chapbooks and sold out first time in my life. So I brought some more. People said, "Oh, please bring some more." So there, there are chapbooks over there. There's a handout from what Kieran is going to be talking about, and there's an, a big thing of information about the, uh, what we do. Sufi Way and the Open Path and our small uh, organization. And then I need to push this. We're having, uh, on Saturday night, we're having a love story jam at Rudra Munder in Berkeley. We're organizing this. There will be seven amazing storytellers, or six or seven, and um, they're all going to tell love stories. So that ties in with what we're doing here this morning, and I would love to see some of you there. It's time for Karen. Hello, everybody. Good morning. 
Rumi and my wife are both hard acts to follow. So, last time I, we shared our personal journeys, and today I want to share a little more about Sufism. I thought about an effective way to do this in the time that we have. Um, and I, I just wrote up questions and very brief answers, and I'm going to, I'm going to go through that. And then that will leave us a little time for one small practice and uh, a meditative, a musical meditation. Uh, and maybe some questions. Jeannie, you'll keep track of time? Yes. Maybe I should sit under <laughs> Now I feel intimidated. <laughs> yeah, this being by you is a mixed blessing. <laughs> Isn't that an amazing poem, though? Wow. Yeah. Okay. Takes my breath away. So, I was thinking, we Sufis are also Unitarian. Because we are oriented toward one mystery. And that's the mystery of the one. And we're universalists, though in a different sense, perhaps. Um, for centuries, uh, Sufism has been associated with Islam. To the degree that today, 90% of scholars, academics, people who read and write about mysticism, insist that Sufism can only be Islamic. We are not. We are, we call ourselves universal Sufis. We feel that the, the essence and the ethos and the wavelength that we recognize as Sufism is there in every faith tradition. And, you know, why faith tradition? It's there in every human. So how can it belong to one particular path or one particular declared faith or uh, school or teaching? It, it, it's there at the heart of all of them, and it's there in all our hearts. And so for us, that is a universal Sufism. It's difficult to communicate that to people who have read a lot about it, because as we read, we become attached to the facts and ideas that we read, and we pay a lot of attention into absorbing and understanding those ideas, and once we have done that, they become ours, and once something becomes ours, then we don't want to give it up. Um, and yet, ironically, paradoxically, that is exactly what Sufism is, giving up. So I'm going to use this... Um, this little cheat sheet that I'll share with you afterwards. I don't want to share it with you now because then you, none of you are going to look at me and you won't hear a word I say. Um, and, and, and if I say something that isn't on the sheet, then you'll go back and say, hey, look at that. He doesn't even... 
he doesn't even know what he's talking about. So the first question I had is, what do Sufis do? And I have a simple answer, love. Right? The quote from Ibn Arabi, whatever path my love's camels take, that is the path that I follow. So, immediately the question that arises is, what is love? And we can all answer that question from in here. But I... I answered it on paper because I'm bold and foolish. My answer is continually ask the question and move toward your answer. And then I added that love is an action, not an attraction. This not being an attraction plays into this idea of non-duality. We think of love as something between two. And basically I say it's not between two. It's, it is, it is a, a universal epiphenomenon. It's happening everywhere all the time. And we may experience it in many, many different ways. But its, its qualities are so totally universal that it is beyond words. We can call love gratitude. We can love, call love kindness. There's a sign out there as you walked in that said the final form of love is forgiveness. Um, kinship, sympathy, empathy, um, giving, caring, compassion, these all, these all fall under the rubric of love. Um, and at different times, that's how love shows up. But love is this universal chemistry and this universal magnetism that imbues each of us with the life that we are. And it plays itself out through us. It works itself out through us. And it does that, if you like, for a particular mythology, it does that for the joy of the creator. Or you could have a different mythology and says it does that because it doesn't know any better. It has faith in us. <laughs> and, you know, why does it have faith in us? Well, because it is faith. So, we have this um, invocation that we say in the Sufi lineages or uh, kinships, uh, fellowships that um, originated or were guided by the teachings of this mystic, Hazrat Anayat Khan. And um, it begins, the invocation begins towards the one, the perfection of love harmony, and beauty, the only being. I won't say the rest of it because I'd have to explain it. And, and so we use this phrase towards the one love. And we see that as an opening into openness. All we can do is open ourselves to more love. 
that is what I guess I'm trying to say Sufis do. But see, to me, the word Sufi is exactly equal to the words human being. So when I look at all of you, I see a bunch of Sufis. <laughs> and I feel at home. Anywhere. This love, <clears throat> as expressed in Sufism, you know, there's this, there's this study of non-duality as it is received in different traditions. The Advaita tradition, the Dzogchen tradition of the Tibetans, Kashmiri Shaivism, and lots of Western uh, teachings around non-dualism as well. The, the, there is the same sense of a one love towards the one love in Sufism, but it has, to my understanding, a little more emotionality. There is a little more of a sense of the holy. That emotionality, that it's an attachment actually, and and part of you know the mystic path is getting rid of attachments. This is the, possibly the last one, the hardest one to get rid of. The reverence for the holy. And, and it's true, too much of that can actually get in the way of your awakening to presence. Uh, and so this is a, a constant dance between our sentiments, attachments, passions, loves, uh, um, putting things on a pedestal, and clarity of vision and understanding. The next question that I wanted to address was the question of how can you become a Sufi? Well, I've just said you all are. So I guess you are. You know, because I said it. But, <laughs> but three simple ways. Join a group, ask a teacher, read a book. And each one of these ways have their advantages and disadvantages. But they all work. What is the goal of Sufism? Every word has this paradoxical quality because a mystic can't have a goal. A path of attainment is contradictory to a path of releasing selfness or selfiness. So to have a path of attainment, to have a goal, is contradictory. And in fact, what is that thing? Um, there's a famous Sufi saying, which is, this path cannot be found by seeking. Yet only seekers find it. They love to play with your minds like that. So, but to me, what is the goal of Sufism? Uh, Sufism is, is a, a way, it is a path. It is, I mean, we're all living, right? We're, it, we're a verb. And so in that sense, our life is, 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 is a constant doing. And I believe that it is to begin to continue to live 
what we call the inner life. And you all understand what the inner life is. You're here because you have an inner life. So I don't need to explain that. But I think of, you know, I, I want to be a Sufi or I want to call myself a mystic or I just want to be alive. I, I see some of the attractive qualities of that is a depth of thought and feeling and action, a full heart, a loving spirit, a relaxed and playful mind, and a, a caring for the good of people. Without, you know, putting up your hand and saying, here I am, I really care about people. Call on me if you need anything. I'll be over there in the corner reading a book. Um, just, we are naturally sympathetic and empathetic. We naturally care. We have to do a lot to stop ourselves from caring. So, to begin to release that a lot that we do to stop ourselves, to wall ourselves off, is part of becoming human, a human being. And to that, <clears throat> I would add a constant interaction with the one. However, you conceive of the one as many, as all, doesn't matter. But I like to think of, you know, Sufis call the one the beloved. That introduces the tonality into the relationship and the approach that can that, that opens it up. It's not only reverence, awe, and homage. Right? So I wrote down approaching, cajoling, appealing, joking, teaching to the one. And being a friend and lover of the one. The one needs you as much as you need the one. Believe that. The one needs you as much as you think you need the one. There wouldn't be an attraction, a feeling, if it wasn't both ways. There couldn't be. By definition, an attraction is mutual. The one needs you. I mean, so many creation myths are all about how the one created to know us, to experience life through us. Or, if you like to see if we were a successful experiment, which right now we might think we're not. But, but, but there is that idea that, that, in a sense, the creator, if there is such a being, is, is seeing what, what, what the creation is. And loving it, and hating it, and suffering, and taking joy and pleasure, and laughing at the good jokes. All the good jokes, they're really important. So then I, I, I come to the last question that I'm going to ask and answer. And that is, how do we live today in these apparently especially difficult times? So one of... Part of my answer is to stop thinking that we're so damn special, that these are especially difficult times. Everybody always had to deal with shit. Pardon my language. Everybody has always had to deal with poverty, struggle, destitution, oppression, um, violence, violence 
um, homelessness, hunger, uh, annoying relatives. (laughs) It's just the way it is. Why do we think we're so special? Because the planet is coming to an end? Maybe it is. So what? You're here. You're alive. A different challenge will face your children and your grandchildren. Of course that matters enormously. But at the same time, be real. You're here. You're safe. What are you complaining about? This is possibly, you know, this right here, apart from a couple of Western, Northwestern European countries, is possibly the most uh, prosperous, comfortable, and self-satisfied um, population of people that the world has seen, if, if we take us as an aggregate. Of course, we're falling, we're falling into all the, the, the problems that continually recycle, which is, you know, this horribly unequal distribution of wealth, this complete lack at, at a certain level where, where wealth and uh, well-being is controlled, lack of understanding and compassion for people who have it, who have it bad. But nothing stops us from feeling compassion. Nothing stops us from caring. And if you don't go out into the front lines and, and protest or go to a soup kitchen and serve, you can still heal. Your heart is a healer. Take care of yourself and those immediately around you in the sphere of feeling. Courage. You know, courage sounds like a big challenge. And, And it is. An important Sufi practice is to put people in the way of harm or danger or potential harm and danger so that they can experience a level of courage that we all possess that we don't recognize or acknowledge or admit. It's a, it's a valuable exercise. Try it sometime. Give yourself a task to go somewhere unusual or just a little bit on the edge and, and see how you hang out there. You don't have to go, you know, to the catastrophic one immediately. You can get there eventually, but, but, but just push yourself beyond your natural. I mean, who doesn't have social anxiety? <laughs> All right, one person in the room doesn't. So, 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 but, but, that social anxiety keeps us from actually looking at each other directly and seeing how the other is doing and what they're asking from us. 
which is exactly, you know, what we want from them, which is common human exchange and love, affection, a smile. So, so courage. And it, yeah, you can really heal the space around you, and that's why you're there. You go in person or you go with your heart where you feel suffering is. The friend who's not well. The person on the street who walks by your home every day to find a place to spend the day and then they go back somewhere else on the street to spend the night. What could you do for them? It doesn't have to be extreme. Put out your hand. Don't In fact, don't offer solutions. Respond to the feeling that comes up in you. Dare to feel. I guess if I if I thought there's one thing that describes or these words are such traps that 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 a Sufi should (laughs) that word (laughs) that a Sufi should aim. Two, it is deeper feeling. Okay, it's 10 o'clock? Wow. How much time do we have? Oh. Okay. So... So I'll pause here, right? Those were my questions to which I had written answers. Um, Do you have questions for either of us? After that, we'll do a little bit of practice. I I know I said I would talk about love, but, but, yeah, talking about love is like writing about water. Yes. Um, From time to time uh, in my relationship uh, with my husband, I am needing what I call empathy. Is empathy and love synonymous or close? Can you say that something? I I am feeling something and I want him to be sympathetic or empathetic. Can you can you comment on that, please? Sure. Um. I mean, I think I said this, but I'll say it again. Love shows up in so many different forms. And certainly sympathy and empathy are forms of love. Um, The sympathetic person opens themselves to your trouble. The empathetic person feels it. Both can do something for you. And if they don't, they need some help too. They need, they need touching somewhere so that they can open to have the confidence to reach out and help someone else. Am I, am I talking too softly? Yes. Okay, I'm sorry. But did you hear what I said? Okay. Yes, ma'am. Could you say whatever you feel like saying about Rumi? About Rumi? 
<laughs> who I love. It's a... Poets are a blessing. And he was an extraordinary blessing. Do you know his story? He was the son of a teacher, a Sufi teacher. And early in life, um, the place where they lived was was being invaded by the Mongols. And so they became refugees. And so they were from Central Asia and they went west. And they settled eventually in Anatolia, in central Turkey. His father was a highly respected teacher and <clears throat> gathered students around him. And uh, this would be like a, a fairly traditional uh, Sufi school slash monastery. Um, the word monastery is very strongly suggestive of monkishness, so maybe that I should find another term, but I haven't. Um, and, and so his father was uh, this highly respected teacher, and his son, Jalaluddin, my father's name was Bahauddin, the son, Jalaluddin, was brilliant, and clearly, you know, destined to be what Sufis call the teacher of the age. Uh, Father Bahauddin passed away and Jalaluddin ascended to the seat of teaching. And uh, he, was, he was brilliant in you know, theology and cosmogony and, and uh, mysticism, metaphysics, uh, all those esoteric subjects. And people came from all over to admire him, also for his youth and probably a certain amount of personal beauty, because uh, we all love personal beauty. Uh, it's another mark of the divine. And um, I think he had a very self-satisfied life. I mean, here's this brilliant guy, you know, at not only at one of the top universities, but kind of creating one of the top universities in the area and regarded by scholars and other teachers as, you know, the cream, creme de la creme. And and one day he's returning from teaching his classes and he's surrounded by his students and he's carrying his book. This is the story. Carrying these books and a very rough-looking tramp, you know, probably rags and scratching himself and snot coming out of his nose and hair not being combed in months and, and so on, kind of comes and looks at him, stands in his way and puts out his arms and takes all the books and throws them into a fountain. And uh, Rumi freaks out and, oh my God, those... You know, he says, all oh, those books, are that important to you? And so he jumps into the fountain and brings the books out, and they're completely okay. They're not wet or anything. And he says, yeah, if this is what you want, here you are. Go. And so that is the meeting, one of the versions of the meeting, between Jalaluddin Rumi and Shams Tabriz. Shams was a wandering mystic 
of a different kind, of a different order. And he, you could say, was sent to bring Rumi into a different sphere of knowledge and groundedness and understanding. So then they had a very intense relationship. So intense that Rumi spent most of his time with Shams and everybody else became wildly jealous, as you can imagine, right? I mean, I don't know how it is over here, but if, you know, the pastor over here spent most of their time talking with one or two of you, I'm sure the rest of you would say, you know, well, what's this about? This is not cool. And, and uh, let's go talk to the committee. Maybe we need a new pastor or something like that. So I'm not suggesting anything. <laughs> Just making trouble. Um, and so they drove Shams out. And then Rumi became desolate and incapable of teaching. And so he sent his son, who found Shams, and brought him back. And then there was another period of the same exchange. I mean, Shams also learned from Rumi, and Rumi learned from Shams. It was kind of sun and moon, and you never know which one is which. Um, but the, the old problems came back, and then eventually... Uh, the story is that a group of his students had Shams killed. Um, and that's when <laughs> and that's when right and that's when the poetry began to pour out of him. And that was also the founding of the twirling. That's right. And the Mevlevis are the Sufis who twirl so beautifully. And that's Rumi's um, lineage. But I think that that happened after Shams was... His son. Yeah, that's right. He began to turn. Um, I tell a story about this. I might tell a story about this on Saturday night. The same story, but elaborated, so I won't go into it. Yeah, yeah. But, but he began to write this poetry, and he wrote it in the name of Shams. Grief, enlightenment, sorrow, pain, opening, 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 big cracks where the light gets in. To quote another great Sufi, Leonard Cohen. One more question. My own knowledge of Sufism stemmed from uh, Idris Shah's uh, Tales of the Dervishes. Uh, I learned this morning uh, that it was one of a series of books of instructional materials, practical on how to live. Um, can you speak about Idris Shah and his program? Idris Shah was a he was a charismatic and brilliant and fun-loving guy. He lived in England, not far from where I, I met my teacher and uh, lived in a, in a non-monastery, um, in a community home. He, he did write these 
gather these wonderful teaching stories they are. As you read them, they're not just entertainment. There's a lesson in each of them. Like the famous Sufi character, Mullah Nasruddin, who there are a lot of the wise fool, a lot of stories about him. Um, Shah was originally from Afghanistan. His father and his brother, they were all Sufis trained in an order called the Naqshbandi, which have a particular style of teaching um, and a particular lineage. Um, his was a more intellectual path, you could say, teaching this. And he created a kind of a mythos. And like most mythoses, the, the proportion of truth and fantasy is indeterminate. Um, but he was a great introducer because he, in terms, for Idris Shah, everything that is good in the West, that is bright, that is intelligent, that is artistic, that is accomplished, came from Sufis in the Middle East thanks to the Crusades and times after that. Um, you know, the troubadours took their origin from there and the architects and the the guilds took their origins from there. The, the Shah Cathedral and Notre Dame, etc., were all built by people who were trained by Sufi architects, etc., etc., etc. So all of Western civilization is founded on Idris Shah's interpretation of Sufism. Um, some of what he did was brilliant, and some of what he did was quackery. Um, that's how I have come to understand him. Um, but a brilliant guy and fun. The stories are really fascinating. They promise all these great powers. I, um, you know, I haven't met a Sufi with all those great powers and I haven't got them myself. But, you know, they're out there somewhere for people who want them. Okay. Um, what I'd like to do, uh, two things. Um, I'm going to invite you to do a very, very simple, brief practice. And then I invite you to join us in a musical meditation, which we call zikr, which means rem remembering or remembrance. And um, so the practice first, and we'll do that for about five minutes. Very simple. Relax, sit comfortably, no particular, you know, godlike disposition needed. Um, settle your breathing. Yawn if you feel like. It helps to settle your diaphragm. And when you feel comfortable doing it, close your eyes.
And just for these five minutes, I'd ask you not to peek. Don't open your eyes to see how the others are doing or what they're doing. This is you with you. What I'd like you to do now is to listen behind your listening to the silence in which all sound arises. I'll repeat that. Listen behind your listening to the silence in which all sound arises. Gradually begin to come back to your normal auditory recognition. And when you feel ready, open your eyes. So that's a simple exercise that we can all do anytime. That silence behind the sound, you can kind of think of it as an ever-present an ever-present mark of the presence of the one. Does that make sense? It's always there in the silence in which everything arises. It's a place where you can always go to know the presence of the one. It's not an asking place or a talking place. It's just a being there with. And anyway, whatever I say, if you do it, you will discover what it is for you. So, zikr is one of the few practices that all, or almost, I would say all, Sufis around the globe do. Sufis, good Sufis, are like any humans. They love to disagree. And they'll disagree about every darn thing. But, they'll do zikr. That remembering. Remembering what? Probably remembering an original unity. Unity. And beyond that, what unity, etc., etc., it's entirely up to you. It's a wordless 
expanse, it's a wordless space, where you find your way. Sometimes when I do zikr, it's like a movie. This whole dreamlike thing almost, story takes place. Sometimes when I do it, it's blank. Sometimes my mind is so busy, I, you know, I get incredibly irritated. And, damn it, and then almost the moment the word damn it comes out of my mouth, boom, suddenly it's all okay. But it's not necessarily a place of peace, though that's what we're going to sing. It it takes time to get there. Sometimes it's beautiful like that, and sometimes it is frustrating as heck. It's just something that you do. You know, like you sit and eat, you sit and zikr. Or like you uh, do sudoku, do zikr. Different muscles, but similar idea of exercising something. So this zikr, it's um, it's an, it's in English, and it's called the zikr of harmony. I'll give you the words, and then we'll sing it. I'll start singing it with Jeannie, and after a while, as you absorb the melody, please join in. Don't hesitate to join in. It doesn't matter if you hear the words wrong or sing it wrong. Either someone on your right or left will nudge you, uh, or if they're too polite for that, then, you know, they'll deal with it. And it'll be good for them. You know, remember what I said, the, 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 uh, or did I say it? (laughs) The, 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 the enterprise of being a mystic is about losing this beautiful word that uh, Stephen Colbert coined, selfiness. You know, it's not selfishness, and it's selfiness. It's a great word. So the enterprise of being a mystic is of losing our selfiness. So if the person on your right or your left is singing awfully or singing the wrong thing, and you don't want to nudge them, or you want to be... a great opportunity for creating harmony in your heart. It really is. Tolerance. Tolerance is love. Harmony is love. Right? There is a place of beauty. There is a place of peace. There is a place of harmony in me. Those are the words. I'll say them one more time, then we'll start. There is a place of beauty. There is a place of peace. There is a place of harmony in me. I want to add one more note. We are accustomed to singing sweet things sweetly. But if you pay attention to your passions, to where you are really moved, we are unruly. And so I don't care 
if you sing sweetly or crazy or mad, try to reach the feeling in you that these words bring to you. It's not a choir. It's not sweet. It's not, you know, everything is nicey-nice. Life is not nicey-nice. Why should worship be nicey-nice? Oh, yes. Uh, you want to talk about what's yeah, going to happen? I don't know, so you... Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so normally what happens at the end of a zikr, when we do a, a zikr, um, a musical zikr, is that everybody is really, really quiet, and they don't start talking to each other about what they're going to do next, and they just slowly leave. But this is an unusual situation, because we're all here together, and... Some of you may want to talk to us afterwards and you want to talk to each other. So we're not going to, we're not going to have that, that quiet, um, peaceful, silent thing that happens afterwards. Um, so feel free then to, to, as we come out of it, um, uh, talk to each other and, and get ready to go to worship or do whatever you're going to do next if you want to come up and, and look at some of the stuff we have up there. Um, the other thing I want to say about Zikr is that um, we are we do these programs at at Rudra Mandir, and on December eighth we're going to be doing an evening of Zikr. And we have a sign up sheet here for anybody who would like to put your email down. If you are you interested in in pursuing or in seeing us again, then you put your name on that email list, and we would. You'll hear from us, and you don't have to ever respond, but but you can. <laughs> so so that would be a way to keep in touch if you would like to do that at the end of the zikr. And we need the handheld mic. I don't know where that is. This is going to be a little challenging because we both need to be mic'd, and the harmonium needs to be mic'd. So I'm going to try to sing here, and I'm going to try to hold this mic for Kieran. Are you okay? Oh yeah. All right. Maybe I'll put the chair Yeah. Uh-huh.
And now you are all Unitarian Sufis, just like me. (laughs) Thank you so much. This has been wonderful for us.